Good morning, everybody. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at The Journey, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm uh, back after a couple of weeks of vacation. My family and I did a little bit of traveling. We um, went to kind of like the coast of New England all the way up to Maine. Absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Uh, first couple of days, I joked that I might not come back. And then I opened my eyes, and there was a two-year-old next to me. And I realized I need to come back soon. So here we are. Uh, today, actually, he is uh, in the two and threes uh, class with our, past, our lead pastor, Chad Simpkins. He's volunteering today. Uh, so as I, ha- I was handing, yeah, yeah, give it up for Chad. But it also means that we could use an extra couple hands. So if you are interested in volunteering kids ministry, uh, come talk to one of us at the end of the service and we'll, we'll, we'll connect you. But anyway, I'm handing Jack to Chad and I said, Jack, Jack this is my boss. Please don't get me fired. And then I hand him off. So hopefully by the end of this, I will still have a job. Um, all right. So we are in the middle of a series we're calling Road Trip. And the general idea of the series is that if you look through the Bible, you're going to see over and over these stories of people having these experiences. Sometimes it's encounters with God. Uh, and those experiences and those encounters transform them and change their lives in, in some way. So we're going to look today is actually probably one of the most famous of these encounters. Uh, this past week I was hanging out with some friends and I was sharing, they, they don't come to this church, and I was sharing kind of like what, what this sermon series is about. And as soon as I talked about road trip, my friends say, oh, you mean like Saul on the road to Damascus? And I said, exactly, and that's actually what I'm preaching on this Sunday. So with that, uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, or so if you want to pull out your Bible on, on your phone, you, we are going to be on the book of Acts. I'm going to be in Acts chapter 9. I want to start reading on verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, saying, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we enter into this time? Dear God, we come before you this morning believing that you long to speak to us. There's something in your word that can transform us this morning. So as we enter into this text, into this story, we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, Saul is one of the most fascinating characters in the New Testament, right? Like, we were read about him in, in this passage, but actually, this isn't where we first see Paul. Where we first see Paul is in the chapter before this. Um, kind of like the, the church is getting started in Jerusalem, and they have now appointed these this guys named deacons. And deacons are the people that were kind of like distributing the funds of the church to take care of the poor and the widows and things like that. And one of these deacons is a name named, named Stephen. And, and Stephen... Uh, becomes in history the first martyr of the church. He's somebody that starts uh, preaching about Jesus, and the town sort of like turns on him and, and, and stones him to death. And we first read of Paul on, on uh, Acts chapter 8 at the end of this event. This is why it says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. You read these two sections of, of, of the book of Acts, and like the, if I'm reading it, kind of like my first impression is that Saul is going to be like the villain of this season of, you know, Acts of the Apostles. You know, it's like new Netflix show. Who's a bad guy, right? And, and, and Saul shows up, and he seems to be kind of like the villain. And uh, because of that, sometimes I think that it's a little bit hard for us to make sense of the story of Saul's conversion and kind of like the meaning behind it because it's become so popularized. We've read about it in books. We've, it's been talked about, you know, movies, pieces of art. Uh, you know, uh, there's paintings about it. I think we have, for example, Caravaggio's, uh, you know, scene of like, you know, uh, Paul's Road to Damascus. It's like this very famous painting that you can show anytime that I'm moving my arms so people can see what I'm talking about. There we go. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> By the way, this is the second painting Caravaggio makes about Saul. That, like, there's this priest that com uh, commissions him to make one. He makes one, and he doesn't like it, and he makes him paint it again. Like, I would like to be able to do that. Just like, Picasso, make me a painting. Like, it's not good enough. Make me another one. By the way, the first one is better, but that's just my personal perspective. Nothing to do with discernment. My point is this. Um, the, the story of Saul has become so popularized. We've heard about so much that a lot of times there's all these nuance under the story that we kind of like miss out on, on, on seeing that happen. So part of what I want to do today is 
help give you a little bit of like detail of kind of like what's going underneath because I think that when we get that, there's a couple of very important lessons that we can glean from, from this passage. Um, has it ever happened to you that you were driving somewhere or you thought you were driving somewhere uh, and it turns out that you were going somewhere else, okay? And I know how good at directions you are because half of you are nodding and says, yes, I know what you're talking about. Half of you are like, are, are you insane? Like, what, what, what are you mentioning? Um, let me tell you, I have no sense of direction whatsoever. So what I've decided to do with my life is I've put my, my trust for my soul in Jesus and my trust for my directions to the nice people at Google. All right? Uh, I need kind of like a Google Maps, like some sort of GPS app. The one I prefer, it's called Waze. It's also owned by Google. Uh, this can be a controversial choice. Some people don't like it. My wife hates it. I've actually heard slander of Waze on this very stage by Taylor, one of our worship leaders. If you are here right now, Taylor, I will never forgive you for that. Anyway. Listen, whatever you like about Waze, I love it. I think it's great. The algorithm almost never has failed me, okay? And the time that the algorithm has failed me is not the algorithm's fault. It's been my fault or human error or something like that, right? Um, I don't know how many of you remember, but before I came on staff here at Journey, I used to come a couple of times a year kind of like as a guest preacher. And exactly almost a year ago, Chad um, got sick with COVID and needed somebody to speak for him last minute, and he just worked out that I could do it. So I came here, I spoke, you know, two services, got in my car, opened my Waze app, and clicked, take me home, right? 45 minutes later, I called my wife, and I told her, hey, I'm going to be 20 minutes later than I told you, because I'm pulling into Ikea. <laughs> I didn't need anything from Ikea. It's not like I wanted a new Billy bookcase, right? I wasn't intending to go to Ikea. That's where Waze took me. And you know that I'm bad at directions, because this is the map of kind of like how I would have gone home, Okay? This is a map of how I went to Ikea, okay? <laughs> to the other side. And it never occurred to me, this doesn't look familiar at all. Like, that's kind of like how bad of directions I am. And listen, listen, listen. We can sit here all morning pointing fingers. Was it your fault, Joe? Was it Wayne's fault? That's neither here nor there, okay? It doesn't matter. The point, the reason why I'm sharing you this story with is because, in a way, part of what's going on in the story of Paul is similar to this. Uh, we like to think of Paul as just this villain of the story. He's a bad guy. He doesn't like Christians. He wants to persecute them. But when you understand who Paul was, it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. Actually, let me show you a passage. This is Acts chapter 22. Uh, throughout the book of Acts, the apostle Paul will kind of like retell his story over and over. And this is one of the times that he retells the story of his conversion. So Acts 22, verse 3. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As a student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. And now, when you read the story, Paul isn't trying to justify what he was doing. He's actually just trying to get you to understand his frame of mind, right? Um, at the time of Jesus, um, kind of like the... the 
the Jewish faith is kind of like this complex religion that has these different sort of like sects or like, you know, schools of thought, right? Gamaliel, for example, the master of Paul that educates him, it's actually kind of like a pacifist because there's scenes in the Bible where he's kind of like saying, listen, if this way of Jesus is the truth, let them be. And if it's not the truth, it's going to fall for its own way, right? And the reason I'm telling you this is because one of the kind of like dark stains in the history of the church throughout the ages is that we've had some past kind of like anti-Semitic, uh, Catholic Church, for example, or oh, no, no, the Catholic Church, like uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer. Terrible anti-Semitic has some horrific writings. And, you know, part of what was used by the church when it came to power to persecute Jewish people was passages like this, that kind of like painted Jewish people as the bad guys. But that's not kind of like how Paul sees what he was doing. Paul was actually trying to honestly honor God in a way. Because if you look at the end of the, of the Old Testament, part of what happens there is, the people of Israel end up in exile in Babylon. And the prophets and the writers are trying to make sense of how they end up in exile in Babylon. If God is for us, if God, you know, it, it's our God, how did this happen? And kind of like the conclusion that, that the Old Testament comes to is because the people of Israel had kind of like strayed away from God. And the way in which they had strayed away from God was because they had embraced and gotten involved in all sorts of practices from the neighboring nations that didn't please God. By the time that, you know, we see Paul and, and the first centuries, when Jesus enters into the scene, the people of Israel are back in their native land, but they are under Roman occupation. So in a way for them, they're still kind of in exile, and they say, if God is going to do something for us, we have to be as faithful to the Torah, as faithful to kind of like our core tenets as possible, and part of that means that you rooted out blasphemy. And unless the story of Jesus is true, it sounds kind of, Blasphemous, right? Like there's some random guy saying that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. You don't want any of that. That's the mentality that Paul has as he's persecuting the church. He's, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but I'm saying he's like, he's trying to do this to honor God. He thinks he's going a particular way, even though the actions that he's taking are taking him in a different direction. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when we understand that dynamic, it sort of unlocks the passage, and there's all these lessons that we can learn from it, and that's a little bit what I want to spend the rest of my time sharing with you. The first lesson is this, that sometimes we can be doing what we think God wants us to do when we're actually doing the opposite. Jesus asked Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Saul asked the voice, hey, who are you? And the voice answers, I'm Jesus. And that's what that is, right? And the reason why that happens, because if you read that, it sounds like a very abrupt thing. Like, just, it's not like Jesus says, I love you, or it's not like Jesus says, you need to repent. It's just Jesus saying, I'm Jesus. The, the, the power of that is that for, for Paul, that idea of Jesus speaking back, I think that before that Paul, I, maybe he thought that Jesus was a charlatan, or maybe he thought that Jesus was like a normal rabbi and his followers were taking this way too far, and that's why he was trying to root out. But Paul, hearing Jesus himself speaking to him, basically revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of Israel. In other words, Paul realized, this is what I've been after my whole life, and it's finally in front of me. And that implicates two things, right? One is that he has been working against that. 
There's another passage in the book of Acts where Paul is telling this story. Uh, Acts 26, verse 14 says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Goats were a plowing tool. Uh, in the New Living Translation, that's a translation that we usually use here at church. It translates it this way. It is useless for you to fight against my will. The implication is that Paul realized, I've been doing all these things thinking that this is what God wanted. And I'm actually kind of like working against what God wants. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever watched the movie Kingdom of Heaven. It's by Ridley Scott's movie about the Crusades. It's an awesome movie. If you ever watch it, though, don't watch the regular version. Rent the director's cut. It's four hours long. It's like the best four hours we spent this weekend, okay? All the battles, it's great. But anyway, the point of the movie is kind of like this indictment on the crusades. It's kind of like showing you, you know, this group of people going through the crusades and kind of like how, um, you know, people use the name of God to commit all sorts of violence and atrocities. And one of the Common lines in, in, in the movie is the battle cry of the crusaders, which was God wills it. And every time they would attack someone, every time they would go to war, every time they would like raid a village or whatever, the thing that they were proclaiming was God wills it. And I don't know the minds of everybody in the crusades, right? In retrospect, it's easy for us to say, oh, they were all just imperialistic, whatever, trying to take land and money, and they used gas and excuse. Chances are that, yes, some of them were like that, but I wonder if there were people doing it that really believed because somebody with a rope told them that this is what God wanted them to do, and they just went off to war because they believed that God willed it. Now, we're in a completely different setting both from Saul and from the Crusades, and yet I wonder if we also do this sometimes, that we act in a particular way and we use God to justify how we're acting. But are we sure that that's what God wants us to do? Now, this can be true in a number of settings. For the sake of time, the one example that I want to bring to us is how we've come to treat each other in this country in the last 65 years. Those who believe different from us, that vote different from us, that look different from us, and I see this in social media all the time, that we become so polarized that our disagreements have transcended policy and ideology and theology and started seeping into our humanity and our character. That we're not fighting over what we believe or what we think or how you think we should vote. That we're fighting kind of like on the basis of like, I think that you're fundamentally an evil person. I'm going to attack you because God wills it. And I could stand here and I could quote you passage after passage about Jesus telling you to knock that off and warning you to knock that off. I'm going to just read you one and I'll leave it there and I'll continue with my sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, I can't even watch soccer anymore, apparently. You are in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And the point I'm trying to make is this. 
what if Jesus could log into your Facebook account? Scary thought, right? And he sees how we treat each other. And what if he would say to us, so, so, why are you persecuting me? Not because of the validity of your arguments or because you or the person on the other side is right or wrong, but because of the way in which we do it. There might not be physical violence. It's verbal violence. That in our hearts there's some sort of disdain for the people on the other side. I think that part of the reason why that's become so prevalent in today's society is because we're afraid of each other. And we're kind of like always assuming the worst of each other. And believe it or not, I actually find also hope in this passage because one of the things that this passage shows you, shows us is the power that God has to turn enemies into brothers and sisters. Because the problem is that we see the world around us and we see the people that think different from us, look different from us, vote different from us, not as neighbors to love, but as enemies to defeat. So the second thing that I see in this passage is this, that God's grace is powerful enough to change us and to change others. Saul is better known in history as Paul, which is a name that the the writer of the book of Acts doesn't really start using until a few chapters later. In chapter 13, actually, there's this encounter that Saul has with a sorcerer. I know it sounds weird. We can talk about it later. It's not the point of the sermon. Anyway, Acts 13, verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. From this verse on in the book of Acts, Saul is now called Paul. There's a couple reasons for that. One is that from this moment on, you're going to see Paul mostly working in Greek settings. And Paul is just kind of like the Greek-sized version of Saul. Like if we were in Ecuador, people would call me Joel. You nice people call me Joel. I respond to both names, right? If you want to give me money, I respond to Peter, whatever you want to say. <laughs> in this particular case, right? So like Paul starts using the, Saul starts using the name Paul. But, but, but the way that the, the, the writers of the Bible work is like kind of like are layering meaning upon meaning upon meaning. It's not hard to, it's not a stretch to say that part of what's going on here is that the writer is trying to tell you that this Saul guy is this completely new person now. That God has given him this new identity. That he goes from being this guy that's persecuting Christians to becoming one of its greatest champions. Paul has this collision, this encounter with the grace of God. And it changes him. But it doesn't only change him. There's another character in the story, right? And that's Ananias. Ananias is this Christian that's living in Damascus. And God has, you know, gives him a vision. And he says... I want you to go and pray for Paul so he can regain his sight. And I love Ananias' response, right? He says, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, Acts chapter 9, verse 13. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias is afraid of Saul. Now, wouldn't you be too? You know, like if he wasn't somehow hearing the voice of God and he heard that Saul is now a Christian... He probably wouldn't have believed it. And that's what enmity does. Enmity makes us distrustful and suspicious of each other. And we're always expecting the worst thing from the person on the other side. 
And yet, listen to how the passage closes. Verse 17. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. This passage begins with Saul trying to chase and persecute and arrest Christians. It begins with one of those Christians seeing Paul as bad news and distrusting him. And it ends with that same guy calling Saul brother and baptizing him. The grace of God changes Paul, but it also changes Ananias. Which, by the way, is what God has been after all along. Because one of the main effects that sin has in the world is that it has fractured all of our relationships. With God, first of all, but if we're honest, also with each other. And the thing that Jesus is doing at the cross is not only taking on the effects of sin upon himself, but he's also showing us a different way to live, a way that doesn't fight back, a way that doesn't repay evil for evil, but a way of laying down our lives and saying, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. Jesus wants enemies to become brethren. Later on, Saul would call this idea the ministry of reconciliation. That, that when our lives collide with the grace of God manifesting Jesus, not only are we transformed, but our relationships with others can also be transformed and healed and restored. That's the effect that the grace of God has on us. That's what we see in this story. It's not only the story of how Saul becomes to follow Jesus. It's a blueprint of how people can change and how enemies can be reconciled. Now, there's a ton of implications on this too for our lives. But the one I want you to consider is this. What if we looked at other people through the lens of hope and possibility for what the grace of God could do in their lives and in our lives. And you can apply that however you want, right? Maybe this, your friend that you disagree politically or theologically or whatever, that you're always getting into it. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to see that person through a different lens. But maybe it's different. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a parent. Or one of your children, that because of decisions that they've made or decisions that you've made, you find yourself estranged from them and so far away. And maybe, you know, your thought right now is they're so far gone. Maybe it's far gone from, from the faith, from God. Maybe it's far gone from you here. And you feel that that relationship could never be restored. Or that they could never change. Or, if we're honest... That we could never change. Here's the thing. If the grace of God is this big and this powerful, and if in Jesus somehow the floodgates of that grace have been burst open for the whole world, who is to say that Saul can become Paul? And that Ananias can come to call him brother? And that that relationship can be healed and fixed and restored. Here's another thing. 
if you start seeing people through that lens, would you treat them differently now? Would you be kinder to them? Gentler? More hopeful, maybe? What if you saw the world and others through the lens of grace? For me, there's one final lesson in today's passage. Let me take you to another place in New Testament, another writing of Paul. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is Paul talking. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. One of the things you're going to notice when you read the rest of Paul's letter is that there's always this tension between his past and his present. A, because everybody knows what he used to do, right? So it's kind of like, dude, like you're telling us to do this thing, but look who's talking. But I think that part of it is too because he remembers what he used to do. And there's a part of it that he just can't forget about it. And you see that it sort of like haunts him, right? He talks about himself saying he's the worst of all the sinners, that he doesn't even deserve to be an apostle. And I'm not sure that it's all rhetorical flourish. Because once in time, that's actually how Paul thinks about himself sometimes because of what he used to do. Uh, there's this thing that I've noticed sometimes when I talk to people uh, in two categories. Either people that came late to life in the faith, like people that became Christians in college or after college. And I'll be talking to them sometimes, and they'll say something like, I was a terrible person when I was in college. And they never elaborate, so I don't know if that means that like, they drank too much or that they were like, making meth in their basement. Like, there's no range of <laughs> what's going on, right? I've also noticed that with people that have defining things that they did or that they were a part of that they can't let go of. Uh, that bad decision, that mistake, that thing in their past that's like still with them. You know, it's not only I was really a bad person in college, it can be sometimes I failed at my marriage or I let my family down. You know, I did that one thing, that one day, that just ruined everything. I am the worst of all sinners. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Some of us are defined by the worst thing that we did. By the worst day that we had. By that one mistake that made everything fall apart. And we can come to church and we can be Christian. We can say the prayers and get baptized and take communion. And yet in the back of our hearts it's something that when nobody else is speaking whispers to us, you are the worst of all the sinners. And it hangs over us. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul keeps talking in those two passages. The first one, 1 Timothy 1, right? This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, and I am the worst of them all. But that's not where the passage ends. Verse 16 says, but God had mercy on me. 
so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, right? Verse 8, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But it doesn't end there. Verse 10 says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I but God who was working with me, working through me by his grace. You see that? Paul lives in this tension of his past, but he's not defined by that tension. The way that tension is resolved is that he understands the core dynamic of Christianity that is fundamentally an expression of God's grace. This is what the story that we read this morning is all about, that God meets us on the road, that God comes down to us, even if we're not looking for him, even if we're persecuting him. And because of that, we're not only able to be transformed and be reconciled with God and reconciled with others, we're also able to be reconciled with ourselves. And for me, that's the final lesson of today's text, that God's grace is powerful enough to change how we see ourselves. Paul used to be defined by his ethnic identity. Paul used to be defined by his education, by his accomplishments. Paul also used to be defined by his mistakes, by his past. And all of a sudden, Paul says, neither one nor the other. I'm not my accomplishments. I'm not my bank account. I'm not my ethnic identity. I'm also not my worst mistake. I am fundamentally a recipient of grace. And grace changes everything. One of my favorite quotes from any book I've read is by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning used to be a Catholic priest. He ended up leaving the priesthood because he fell in love and wanted to get married. Brennan Manning also struggled with alcoholism his whole life. To the point that it destroyed his marriage and to the point that some people think that the disease that he died of was accelerated because of his struggles with alcoholism. What's fascinating is that he never sweeps out under the rock, he never denies it. And yet, of all the people I've read writing about grace, he's always the one that really gets to me. Maybe it's because we know what his struggles were. So he says this. And you know what's funny before I go into this? I've read this passage before at this church. The day that I got lost at Ikea. It's one of those things. I don't know if that's what it came back to my mind there. But this is what I read this time. And I want to read to you again. My life is a witness to vulgar grace. A grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hides up the rope and runs breakneck towards the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him on at the sides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, please remember me and assure him, you bet. 
this vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It, it works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover, grace is enough. The story of the Apostle Paul is the story of a man that was going down the road one day thinking he was going one way, realizing that he was actually working against that and colliding with the grace of God. And that encounter changes life forever. The story of us in this room is of people who have collided by the, with the grace of God. And God is inviting us into a life of not only being recipients of grace, but also givers of grace.